Last week we looked looked at a basic idea, or the basic idea of Hanukkah being the the historical historical juncture at which Hanukkah takes place as being the connection between inner and outer worlds. Let's see if we can try and take that a little bit further and explain it a bit more fully from another perspective. Just like there are two lights, as we said, if you recall, the world is set up in such a way that there's always a light that shines first, which is the revelation of perfection of a thing, its higher reflection, if you like, and then that light goes, and there's a second one which shines, which is the one that is lower, but in fact belongs in the place where it shines. We, we discussed this in some detail last week, <coughs> a deep uh, idea that's ex- made explicit in the Kabbalistic sources, the handling of these two phases of the genuine inner essence and the outer, what's called gilui, that means the way the thing reflects itself in the outside, it needs study, it needs thought. In the Torah sources, I mean the source of this thing, which is beyond most of us really, is a discussion of the names, the divine names, names of Hashem, that name which is the name of essence, and those names which are the names of Gilui, that means the names that reveal, that, that bring the name of essence down into the world. One of the ways this can be approached is that when we talk about the manifestation of Hashem within the world, many ways to approach the subject, but one that you'll come across in, in, in Torah time and again is the expression that's used, in fact in modern Hebrew it's so often used <coughs> in so many contexts that <coughs> we fail to hear <coughs> the specific depth in it, is that we talk about God's revelation, Hashem's revelation in the world, <coughs> the way He manifests and demonstrates what he is and what his world is, we talk about his appearance, we use an expression, In Hebrew it's a, it's a, it's a formalism, it's, a, uh, <coughs> it's almost a, a trite expression, when you want to talk about somebody and you mean that the person is dignified, or you mean that there's, there's pomp and ceremony, or you mean something important, you say, it means, it means that the person is here in his... Very, it's impossible to translate. Kvodo means his honor, and Atzmo means himself. I don't know if you have anything like that in English, but the expression means that he's here in his in his in his in his in his honor. It means the way he reveals himself, and and himself. But in Hebrew and in Torah, of course, there's nothing accidental. There are no trite expressions or unnecessary phrases. That has a specific meaning. <coughs> and what it means is, at least one beginning of a, of a feeling of this, is that 
etzem in Hebrew always means the thing itself. The Maral incidentally makes all this, this has, the, has this whole discussion that we're about to, we, that we're beginning to explore now on the concept of the light of the menorah. Light of the, men, of the menorah that burnt in the Mishkan, in the temple, the Basamikdash, in the sanctuary, in the desert. That menorah which, of which our menorahs that we light in the windows now are only a reflection. Ours are the second light of that which was a first light then. And of course that was also a second light with respect to another first light, which was the light of creation itself. Right, I, think, I think you recall, we mentioned last week that, <coughs> that the, the original light, of which the menorah is only a second reflection. Of course, every pattern in the world is always repeating itself within itself. That means if there are two lights that shine, then obviously, if that's an axiom, if that's an axiom in the world, which means everything's based on it, then it means that it itself is based on that, which means you could look at the first light and there you would also see two. <coughs> Anyone with me? <laughs> I should have had a coffee. <laughs> Let's try again. If, if, the, if the world is built of certain axiomatic elements, then it follows that all of those elements must also have those elements within them. Because if you, is this, is this clear? If you say that this concept is fundamental to existence in the world, then obviously every component of that concept itself must have that concept within it. That means if you say that there are always two lights that shine, if you put a microscope on any of them, either of them, you'll also see two. That first light that shone, which is the menorah, of which ours is the second, that itself was also the second of one that had shone before. And that's called oragonus, the hidden light, orhaganus. That means the, the light that is hidden, almost as if it was meant to be hidden. Right? There the, the Gemara says that the light that shone when the world was created was the point of origin of the light that later was reflected in Menorah in the Mishkan. That light was a light <coughs> that was a light that was not like the light we have now. The light that shone when the world was created, now that's visible only in the inner eye. It cannot be seen with the outer eye. The inner eye that we call the dais, the inner wisdom can see that light, but when the world was created, that was the outer light. There was no gap between the inner and outer lights in the world. That light that was hidden, it shone for 36 hours. Right? It, was, it was there on the first day of creation, of man's creation, human being's creation, 12 hours on the Friday, during which man and woman experienced it, and then for 24 hours on Shabbos, even though they had fallen, they had, they had broken their path in the world. But nevertheless, in honor of Shabbos, that light shone. It is the light of Shabbos. And then, Saturday night, when the sun went down, so then the world became dark. It says man became terrified because he'd never experienced darkness before, and it was a real darkness, and he had experienced a real light. And then it says, Nizraka boy, Das ke'en da shalmaila, Nizraka bo, Das ke'en da shalmaila, means there was, there, was, there was beamed into his mind, into his consciousness, a wisdom like the higher wisdom, and he took two stones, he kishan zebazeh, he struck them against each other, and he produced a spark, and that's how he produced fire, and that's how he lit his own fires after the original, his own light, after the original light of the world had disappeared. That's why we make Havdalah on Saturday night, we are using a flame. Right? It's, it's in, in commemoration of the fact that man first brought flame into the world then. In fact, as an aside here, it's not really an aside, it should be known, that's why our women light candles on Arab Shabbos, is because that Shabbos when the light was to shine, and shone only once, 
and went out. And woman was responsible for that. Woman was the original point of weakness that brought... It's a pleasure to be able to say this once, at least. <laughs> One normally focuses on our man's, man's inadequacy, but at least once I think we can enjoy... <laughs> yeah. Woman, woman was the one who was open to the seduction of the Nachash of course his, his performance wasn't any better he, he blamed her and he succumbed to the same problem but nevertheless the role of woman in the world is that she opened the pathway to this problem and of course she's the one who's been correcting it ever since that's why all our redemptions have come from Jewish women I mean it works both ways our redemptions have always come from Jewish women at Purim it was Esther who began the, the whole process at Hanukkah unknown to most people there was a, a woman called Yehudis mm. I don't know if you know that mm. at Hanukkah you don't know that Hanukkah was also in every generation the redemptions you have to hear this in a balanced fashion in every generation the redemption happened from Jewish women when the Jewish people were first formed as a nation in Egypt so the redemption was only because the women were able to take the Egyptian torture and bring the men through it and it, it was in their merit that the redemption occurred and throughout the years in the desert they were not vulnerable they did not succumb to the ordeals that the men succumbed. They were not part of the golden calf. They were not part of the sins that took place in the day. On the contrary, they violently resisted their husbands. Only they succumbed because the men were strong and they took their gold. But they, they've been the source of the redemption, the redemptive effort. It's why birth occurs from a woman. It's why the curse of pain and difficulty in childbirth is located there, but that's where childbirth is. Because the ultimate, ultimate messianic birth is also brought about by the woman element in the Jewish people. That's what birth is. And therefore in Egypt it was women... At Purim, of course, it was Esther. Esther meaning the hidden light. Esther means the one who is hidden. It's the same idea. And Yehudit, that, that, which is that expression of a Jewish name, really. She was the woman who began the Hanukkah miracle. I see there's not enough recognition on the faces of the, of the ladies. You should know about it. There was a decree in the days of the Greeks that every Jewish bride... Every Jew, you know, why are women obliged also in the miracle and the mitzvah of Hanukkah? Normally, women are exempt from time-bound mitzvahs, right? Women are exempt from time-bound mitzvahs because they already have a time connection. They resonate with time. Their body, their body resonates and cycles with time. Men don't have that, that inbuilt discipline and, and rhythm. They don't, they don't resonate with a, with a rhythm that's tied to nature. Women do, so they exempt. They don't need to be built. They don't need that connection to be made. But Hanukkah, even though it has a time connection, women are obliged. The reason is because they were also involved in the miracle of the redemption. And since it involved them, and the Gemara says that it involved them most specifically, because there was a Greek decree that every Jewish bride, before going to her husband, had to go to the governor, the Greek, the Greek uh, <coughs> authority in that particular province or area, wherever it was, and they, that, that was a particularly immoral and cruel decree that the Greeks made. And this particular woman was, had to do that, so when she was alone with this particular Greek authority, so she killed him. She killed him. That, in fact, was the, the nucleus of the revolt. Right? That she killed him by giving him a lot of fatty foods, cheese, it says. Made him sleep very thirsty. Then she gave him to, to drink. And then he fell asleep. She was able to kill him. It's one of the reasons why we eat oil-based foods on Hanukkah. It's important to know this. Anyway. <laughs> Lighting candles on Friday night is a woman's rekindling of the light of the world. That's what it says. He kipta or Olam. She put out the light in a sense, and that's why she is madlik. She lights the light. That's what the that Shabbos candles are not just a. There's no simple simple ritual in Jewish in Jewish life, but that's a particularly potent 
mitzvah <coughs> that is a particular province of a Jewish woman, that's why it's such a powerful moment, is the lighting of Shabbos candles, Shabbos lights. That light that, that lasted then for the 36 hours, that was the first, the first 36 hours of the, um, of the creation, that is the reason, says the Rokeach, one of the early authorities, that we light 36 candles. We light 36 candles on Hanukkah, right? You light one the first night, two the second. You don't have to be a mathematical genius to work out that it adds up to 36 lights. Each of them is connected, is parallel to one of the hours of, of the, the Shlita, the, uh, mm, the, sh- the shining, the dominion, dominion. Oh. the dominion of the uh, original Oragonos that shone, that shone. That light was a supernal light with it, you could see the inside of things, not the outside of things. It penetrated within. No accident that people did not wear clothes at that time. There was no such thing as clothing. There was no hiding of an inside. or There was no difference between an outside and an inside. There was no need to hide. It was not possible. There was no shame in the world. And uh, <coughs> that is what the Oragonus was. And of course it says... Yehi or, Hashem said, Yehi or, let there be light. And the next verse is, Vayehi or, and there was light. But the God of Vilna, in his, in his super conscious, with his super conscious ears, he hears in those words, it says, Yehi or, let there be light. And the next expression is, Vayehi or, and there was light. But anybody who knows anything about Hebrew knows that in classical Hebrew, in biblical Hebrew, when you say, Vayehi, you change the, pre- the future into the past. You change the future into the past, right? Yehi in Hebrew means let there be. Vayahi means and there was. But the way it's done grammatically in Hebrew, you don't have this in another language. The way it happens grammatically in Hebrew is fantastic. The way it happens is, Yehi means let there be. Vayahi means, means and there was. But, the, but, but it uses the word for the future. In Hebrew, the way you make the future into the past is you put a vav in front of it. Yes, in classical Hebrew, when you want to make the future speak of the past... The word doesn't change. You, you say vayahi. In fact, vay in Hebrew means woe. It, it's an expression of anguish. And the God says it's because whenever a future becomes a past, that means the spiritual infinite dimension becomes something that has been, that's an expression of pain. That, that, that's the significance of the past. So, so the God says, when it says, let there be light, vayahi, or the simple interpretation means, and there was light. But the deep interpretation means, there was light, means there had been, means it no longer shone. The simple interpretation of the... Is anyone with me? The simple interpretation of the words is, He said, let there be light. The next expression, and there was light. In English, in English you hear, He said, let there be, and the next moment there was. The God says, it doesn't mean there was. It means there was light. It means it went dark, not it went light. It means He created light, but it was a light called the Oragonus, the light that was to be hidden. And this light that was a future light became a past light. But it remains a future light. It will again shine. Says the God of Vilna, the word in Hebrew has the future and the past because it was a light created to be a future light. But it became a past light then at that moment. So that when, Sha- we, so that when Shabbos <laughs> went out, what happened is that that light became the hidden light, right? So to not be damaged by people who are not spiritually correct. People who live negatively, they should not damage that light which is sensitive. And therefore, it's been, it's been nignaz. Nignaz means treasured away and hidden away in a, in a hidden location, right? Like I mentioned last week, Sassemis says that the Menorah are now buried under the hills of Yerushalayim which is right, we have a tradition that King Solomon, when he built the, ba- the first temple, he hid a, it says, matmoniot akalkalot, hidden, hidden uh, uh, treasure, tra- um, hidden chambers underground, and then King Yoshiao, who was the king immediately before the destruction, 
he did not live to, live to see the destruction, he died before it, but during his reign, he hid the, the Arun and the Menorah, he hid it in this underground place. Right? So that when the temple was destroyed, the original Menorah was not taken. It says the Shazam is just like that western light of the seven lights in the Menorah burnt miraculously, it's still burning now. It's still burning now, but it's nignas, it's been hidden, you cannot see it. Right? Just, it, 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 the light doesn't go out, it's always here, only you have to have the eyes to see. Right? That hasn't been, we don't merit to see that. And because there were that 36 hours of the, of, the, of the dominion of this light, so we light the 36 candles, which is a recrudescence, it's a, a bringing back into the world of that original higher light. The Gemara says, the uh, famous the Gemara says that the, when the menorah was lit in the Mishkan, when Aaron, Aaron the priest, Aaron went into the Mishkan to light the lights, so the Gemara says that um, the menorah was lit, and the Gemara says, v'chilo, v'chilo tzarek, he, need, he needs the light. What does he need the light for? You know that the, the design of the Besamekdash, I'm sure you're aware, is that the windows, you know, in the, in the ancient world, windows in a building, buildings had thick walls. And the, the windows were structured so that the outside was a narrow slit and then the inside was wide. That's how they were built for protective... You see old fortresses today, you'll see it's like that. There's a narrow slit on the outside, but it widens on the inside. And that's why the light can come through a narrow slit, but it's not impeded from spreading when it comes inside. That's what it's done that way. It gives protection from the outside, but it doesn't impede the light on the inside. The Basimikdash was built in the reverse. Its windows were narrow inside and wide outside, and wide outside because its function was to project light, not admit light. The function of the spiritual center of the world is not to be lit from the outside, it is to light the outside world. Right? Just like the Aaron is not carried by the ones who carry it, it carries them. Right? It carries them. Noisa is noisav, it carries them. You think you're carrying it, but it carries you. The Mishkan, so the Gemara says, why did he light the lights? He needs, he needs the light. He needs the light. Listen carefully to these words. The Gemara says, why was he lighting the menorah? Did he need the light? Meaning the simple understanding, Hashem, did Hashem need the light? What was the need for lighting a source of light in the Mishkan? Did they not walk by his light for 40 years? That's what the Gemara says. The 40 years in the desert that the Jewish people walked, right? Va'alo, it says, all the 40 years in the desert, they only walked according to his light. That's what it says. It means that there was a, a light that shone in the 40 years in the desert, the Jews walked according, yeah, they, they saw by that light. What was the point of lighting another light? So Tosis comes along, Tosfot, the, one of the classic medieval commentaries. Tosis said, what, what, what kind of, you have to hear carefully, what sort of question is this? Why was it necessary to light a light inside? Did they not have a light shining for 40 years by which they walked? He says, what kind of question is that? Did we not, do we not walk by his light for all of history? What do you mean 40 years? Do you have the problem? No? If I say to you, Yes, you see a person is lighting some candles to project light, right? In the divine, in the center where the divine presence is manifest. So the question you'd ask is, what are you lighting lights here for? Here's the center of light in the world. This is the place, place is light. You don't have to light lights here. There is light here. So you say, there always was light here. For 40 years there was light in this place. But that's not the question. The question is, there's always light in the world. Not just 40 years. But the deep explanation is the Gemara is not talking about light. It's talking about the kind of light that shone during the 40 years. And that, the Gemara says, was a revisitation of the light of the Oragonus. That's why it says for the 40 years that the Jews walked in the desert, which was a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire that lit up their world at that time, the Gemara says you did not see the outside of things, you saw inside. You saw inside things, you saw what was in a barrel, what was in a pocket, what was in a tapir, a, 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 a jar or a, a bottle. 
what was in it, you saw the inside. Because the Oragonus, this light does not shine on the outside of things, it shines on the inside. What this means is, what it means is that there are two, there are two modes of revelation in the world. One is the revelation of things the way they reveal themselves, and the other is things as they are. And that's what's meant by Bichvoido v'atzmoi. Bichvodo v'atzmo. Atzmo means, etze means the thing itself. Kavod, literally translated, impossible to translate, literally translated, it means honor. But honor in Hebrew, the word kavod always means the, the, the revelation of a thing, the way it's... A king, for example, when a king wears garments, the garments of the king do two things. One is they hide the king, because he's clothed in garments, you do not see him. But you see that he's a king by virtue of his garments. They project who he is. The clothing, clothing does two things. It hides you, that's one of the essential features of clothing, but it also projects who you are. Right? The clothes, not only in the simple sense that the way you dress projects something about you, not only that, much more than that, is that all I see of you is your clothing. The, all I perceive of you, right, except for the face and hands, which are specifically unclothed, and the reason is that the face glows. The face has a vestige still. The hands we have to discuss perhaps some other time. But the, the face has still a vestige of the original light on it. Therefore, it does not need to be clothed. There is no shame. It does not need to be clothed. But the rest of the body is clothed, which means when I see you, I do not see your body. All I have of the manifestation of your body moving and functioning in the world is the way your clothes project it. In a very simple sense. I do not see the movement of the limbs. I only see, all my eyes can see since I cannot see through. I see the, the garments move, right? That's why it says, the description of Hashem, it says, Ote or Kasalma. He wears light like a garment. He wears light like a garment. At a simple level, it means he wears the world of nature like a garment. Meaning that nature hides him. You look at the world of the natural, do you not see the divine? You see natural, you see natural cause and effect. But if you look carefully, you'll see it rippling with the movements of the divine within it. That's what nature is. You only have eyes to see. It will not strike you at first glance, because it is an impervious <coughs> structure. It is a clothing or a garment. But the muscles that ripple underneath those garments, every movement of, those natural, of the natural order is really speaking to you through a veil of the one who is within. Why does it choose light? For the example, because this is what it's referring to. It could have chosen any natural. It could have said he, wore, he wears nature as a garment. But it says he wears light as a garment. Light is always the, the key in Torah, the code. The coded meaning of light in Torah is always method of revelation. Just like place is the stage on which objects are projected, so light is the environment or the medium in which all revelation in the world takes place. And light is always, whether it's the deeper light or the more superficial light, that's what it is. And therefore, when we say it's Hashem's revelation in the world is Himself and His clothed revelation, He and His glory or His honor. So it means that, that He is within, but His projection and manifestation, what we call Gilui on the outside, that is a different kind of a projection. Incidentally, just to hear the clue, the word Etzem in Hebrew and the word Kavod, those two dimensions, meaning the inner reality and the outer reality, the numerical equivalent of those two words is exactly the same as Yehi Or. Yehi or let there be light. The wonderful clue. Yehi or let there be light means all the light in the world, all modalities, was the original commandment to have light created, meaning the inner light and its projection on the outside. That is the exact numerical equivalent of these two dimensions. Yes, kavod and etze, meaning, meaning the essence of the thing and the way you see the thing. Both those together contained within. And of course, the, the application, the immediate application to, in the world of, in the, in the, in the world of one's own inner life, and perhaps the most important one to, for us to focus on, 
before we look at some more deep application, the one that we need to focus on, of course, is that the, what Torah represents is the light, that Torah is a light. Torah is called Orisa. Orita, the light. Torah is called light. That's what it's called. One of the names of Torah is light. And Greek wisdom is also a light. But it's a different kind of light. And what Greek wisdom is, and that was the battle of Hanukkah, it was really a spiritual battle, as you well know. The Greeks did not try to kill the Jewish people. Of course, there was a brutal war that resulted eventually. But what the Greeks wanted to do was simply Hellenize the Jewish people. They wanted to kill them. Unlike at Purim. Right? Unlike at Purim. What the Greeks wanted to do was to influence the Jewish mind, not, not, not destroy the Jewish body. What did they want to do to the Jewish mind? They wanted to make it a secularized philosophical mind. They wanted the Jewish mind to register the light of science in the world, the light that reveals the way things project themselves from the outsides in the world. And what we're about as Jews, what Torah is, is the light that reveals the inner essence of things. And the Greeks came along to say that that cannot be done. The Greek teaching was you cannot reveal the inner essence of a thing. You can only reveal its empirical scientific projection, right? The, the Greek philosophers, or certain of them taught, that you can't know a thing. All you can know is its, it, you can know its color, its texture, its manifestation in the world. You can't know the thing. Are, are you with me? All you can pick up is the emanations of the thing. Your eyes can pick up the, science, the, 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 the physics, the, you know, what, what the thing gives off in terms of your ears, your, your senses. But, but, they, but they're intermediaries. They only make contact with the, that particular mode of revelation of the thing. You cannot know the thing itself. And Torah teaches that you can know the thing itself through Torah. That's what, and they came to destroy that. That's what the battle was. It was an almighty battle. And the was really at issue was the existence of the Jewish people. And of course, that's, that's precisely why they, they stripped the body, the Greeks. They wanted to show that, that that's the correct... They wanted to show that there's no schism between inner and outer. There's only outer. That's why they wanted to show. On the contrary, we, we, we show exactly the opposite. Amazing thing. The, um, of course, that battle is that's still the battle. The, the ideology of Greece became the, the norm, became what Rome took over and represented. Right? The culture, that was the basis of the culture. And today we live in the culture, the fourth exile, which is the Roman exile, which is Western values. That's, that's our problem today. That is our problem. That's, what's, that's the enemy of the Jewish people today. As Jews. As a spiritual people. Briscoe says an amazing thing. Amazing thing. You know, beautiful way of depicting this, demonstrating this. It's a very beautiful, uniquely Jewish approach. You know that Purim and Hanukkah, the two post-biblical festivals, there were two opposite attacks on the Jewish people. And paradoxically, two opposite responses. Remarkable thing. At Purim, the Persians had tried to kill the Jewish people, right? Decree on one day, every man, woman and child in all 127 countries that were controlled by the Persian Empire, all the non-Jews were given authority to rise up and kill every single Jew in a massive holocaust on one day. There was no spiritual battle at all. Right? It, was a, it was a holocaust type decree to destroy the bodies, the lives of, of Jews. At Hanukkah, there was no attempt to destroy the life of Jews. Hanukkah was only an attempt to destroy the mind, right? Only a spiritual, ideological, philosophical battle. But what was the response of the Jewish people? It's a remarkable thing. What did the Torah leaders of the generation teach the Jewish people to do? What was the response? So at Purim, when the, res when the attack on the Jewish people was physical violence, the response was spiritual, a spiritual response. The Jewish people didn't touch weapons. 
There was no attempt to defend themselves physically with any, any kind of physical battle at all. The Jewish people fasted, they put on sackcloth and ashes, it was Pesach, but they sat and fasted for three days. They prayed and did tshuva and fasted, that's what they did. Entirely a spiritual focus. Physical threat, spiritual response. What happens at Hanukkah? What's attacked is the Jewish mind, and they pick up weapons. What's attacked is philosophy, is the you know, complete opposite response. Then the, the spiritual leaders of the Jewish people, specifically the Kohanim, the Hashmonaim were, were priests, were Kohanim, those who had never held weapons, by definition, they went and pulled out some old weapons that were hidden in oil jars and right, that they'd never ever used. They were a, a bunch of Yeshiva Bokrim, they never didn't know which end of a weapon was which. <laughs> they went to give their lives. There was no, there was no consciousness of winning the battle. They, they fought the whole Greek, it was a small family. A small family of priests of five brothers. But they went to war against the Syrian Greek Empire. And miraculously, oh, it, was a bloody, it was a bloody war, it lasted 13 years, but eventually, miraculously, they overcame them, defeated them, and rededicated the temple. But what we have to understand here is the paradox. The Jewish people are threatened physically on the one hand at Purim. The response is a completely passive, from a physical perspective, response. They sit and pray. When they're attacked ideologically, I'm sure they prayed as well, but that wasn't the, 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 the manifest response was they went out to fight. What was the Torah thinking behind this? The Briskorov says an amazing principle, says a uniquely Jewish approach. True Torah approach. He says the reason is like this, not what the common mind would think. The, 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 the man in the street, yes, the, the street, street wise mentality. They attack you spiritually, argue back spiritually. They attack you physically, fight for it. Another Jewish response. He says the principle that governs this response is the underlying principle of all Torah response, of all Torah consciousness, which is a kol bidei shamayim chutz shamayim. Everything is in the hands of heaven except your fear of heaven. That's what it means. What it, what, what it means is that you have no free choice in the world. Everything is in the hands of heaven. Nothing moves in the world, not a molecule vibrates, not a leaf falls. Nothing happens in the world that's due to you. It's all due to that he's the master of everything that occurs in the world and you have nothing, you cannot impinge on it at all. Except your religious spiritual dimension. How you see him, how you relate to him, how you, in the dimension of spirituality, there you are entirely in control. That's the Jewish principle. Like, kol bidei shamayim. Everything is in the hands of heaven. You have no say over it. You cannot influence it. Except your spiritual, your inner spiritual life. Right? That's the teaching. So he says like this. When the Jews were threatened physically at, at Purim, when the, when the Persians wanted to wipe out the Jews physically, what was the use of fighting? What's the use of picking up weapons? I kol bidei shamayim, right? Everything's in the hands of heaven. So picking up weapons is not going to change anything one bit. You're not going to be successful when you pick up weapons if there's a divine decree to wipe you out. The only thing you can do in such a time is try to change the divine decree. You better pray. So when they come to attack you physically, you better deal spiritually. But when they come to attack your Yerushalayim, when they come to attack your spiritual values, that's the one thing in the world that's yours. Pick up weapons. Go and fight for it. What a beautiful insight. Right? Meaning that at Hanukkah, when they threatened you spiritually and philosophically and, and in the area that is yours, where you have your own responsibility, don't turn to him. That's yours. Get out the weapons, whether you know how to do it or not, and get out there and find a remarkable thing, tremendous insight. Meaning that, that this is the area where we function. This is our area. This is, this is who we are. We're not here to be better than they are at their things. We're not here for that. Let's try and track this down a little bit further. The light that shines, that shows, the Oregon is that hidden light that, sh- that shines on the thing itself, what we call etzem, that's the light of Torah. What is the Greek light? What is this light that reveals the externality of things in the world? What is that? In our 
That means, that means it, it, what is its correct application and what is its wrong application? Its wrong application is the secularization of, right, of the spiritual world. Right? That's what the Greek... But it has a kosher application. It has a kosher application. It is the correct use of the world of the external <laughs> to serve the world of the internal. The best application is what we call aesthetics. The world of beauty. The way it's put in the Torah is Yaft Elokim Leyefet. Hashem gives beauty to Greece. Beauty is always the world of aesthetics is always where the inner harmony, the inner reality is reflected in an aesthetic form in the outside. Let, let's study this for a moment. That is a big, it's a, it's a serious area of battle in the spiritual, in the area of consciousness in our generation. What Greece brings to the world, there are three, there are three human groupings. The two, we don't have time now to go into it fully. But let's just focus on the two that we can. But just in a nutshell, there are three human group groupings. Noah, Noah had three sons. Shem, Ham, and Yefes. Right? Shem, Ham, and Yefet. He had three sons. Shem is the Semitic peoples. right? The, the, the origin of the Semitic peoples. Us. Right? Shem means a name. The nominal people. People who name things. That means people whose consciousness is in the world of concepts. Right? In the world of... Right? Needs more development, but for now that's what it is. Ham means hot. That's representing the hot-blooded peoples of the world, whose entire existence is in physicality. Right? Their existence is in sensuous physicality. That's one grouping of consciousness in, among humans. And then you have Yefet. Yefet means aesthetic beauty. Yafe, Yofi, means beauty. And therefore, they are the intermediate group. There's the intellectual, spiritual, that we are supposed to represent. There's the hot-blooded, sensuous physicality. And then there's the intermediate group, which is, which is that consciousness in the world that is, that is bonding the two together. It involves emotions, and it involves the, the, world, of, the, world, of, the world of aesthetics, where there's a physicality giving form to an inner meaning. Can you see the harmony between the two? The lower, the lower end is the end of sensuous physicality. It's not demonstrating any spirituality. There's the spiritual dimension, which is completely mufshat, abstract, completely spiritualized. Then there's the world of harmony between the two, which is an incredible beauty. When an inner beauty is reflected in an outer form. That's what Greece represents. The verse says, Yaft Elokim Leyefet. Hashem gave tremendous beauty to Greece. The Gemara learns from that verse that it's permitted to write a Sefer Torah in Greek. You can write a kosher Sefer Torah in Greek. Even though when you translate the Sefer Torah into Greek, you lose in translation. That's why darkness descended on the world for three days when the sages translated the Torah into Greek as they were forced to do by Ptolemy, not the Egyptian Greek ruler. He, he forced them to translate the Torah into Greek, and darkness descended on the world, because when you translate it, you lose its, its inner... You, nevertheless, it's permitted, and it's a valid Sefer Torah. Why? Because Greek, second to Hebrew, is the most beautiful language, the Gemara says. They have a special dimension of beauty. What's the correct application? Is to use the sense of aesthetics in the world to show an inner beauty. What's the wrong application? is to use aesthetics to show only the externality and not use it as a vehicle for the internal. You want the modern application, there's a... I don't know if you know, there's a Latin phrase which is used in, in Western culture which expresses the... What do you call it in business when you have a, a mission statement, right? Expresses the mission statement of art. Ars gratia artis. Know what that means in Latin? Art for art's sake. Art for art's sake. That means the doctrine, of the, the highest doctrine, it's what we in Torah call Torah lishmo. Torah for the sake of Torah only. 
Right? In the higher world, we want Torah to be only for the sake of Torah, not to be a servant to anything else. But the perversion of that is to use aesthetics for aesthetics only. Are, are you with me? The function of aesthetics in the world is to use a beautiful ex- exterior to show a beautiful interior. Not to show an exterior divorced from an internality that should only be external beauty. That is immorality. Are we getting somewhere? That's the function of clothing, is to demonstrate the internal depth and beauty, and not to... Yeah, that's what modesty is. That's what sneers really means. Let's try and take this a bit further. What are clothes? What are clothes? Why did Adam not wear clothes? What does it mean? What is this beauty and how is it manifest? You know, the focus for this in Jewish thinking is Joseph, Yosef. You know, the parasha of Yosef being in jail and being freed, Mikates, that whole story is always read on Hanukkah. It's always read on Hanukkah. What does Joseph have to do with Hanukkah? Yosef Atzadik, right, who resisted Potiphar's wife when he was only 17. He was the most beautiful man. Joseph is described as the only man in the whole Chumash described as having a woman's beauty. Joseph had a woman's beauty. Had a beauty that, not a woman's, he had a kind of beauty, the words which describe it are words that in other cases we only find applied to a, to woman's beauty, which is natural beauty. What does that mean? No, the Medrash says that Joseph was so beautiful, Yosef was so beautiful that when he went out in Egypt, the women used to the women harmed themselves. The women harmed themselves trying to get to look at him. It says that if they were working, they would climb over. The women, daughters, climbed on walls. They would try to get a look at him. I think the says there were Egyptian women who went around without fingers. Because they would cut themselves while they were trying to get a look and they'd lose what they were doing. <coughs> what does that mean? What, what, what is this beauty and its sensuous connection? What's it got to do with Joseph? First of all, <coughs> what are clothes? <coughs> clothes. <coughs> Before the sin, human beings were not clothed. The reason is that the inner essence shone out through the skin. That means through whatever the, whatever the vehicle was, whatever the body was, it demonstrated the internal dimension. There was no need to clothe the body because <coughs> there was nothing to be ashamed of. <coughs> the body <coughs> demonstrated externally what was the neshama internally. Why do we wear clothes now? Why did he need to clothe himself after the sin? What was the first thing that he did as soon as he sinned? They sinned. They became ashamed. And they covered themselves. Only minimally. They did not have full suits of clothing. They covered only their immediate nakedness. Shame means shame. Not busha in Hebrew. Means bosh. The word bosh in Hebrew means that there is a breakdown between inner and outer. And the inner is a shame that it reflected on the outer as something that it's not. When, when human beings looked like angels, when they, looked, when they were constructed out of light then there was no problem with the body because the body shone the light. But when they sinned in an animal fashion and then their bodies became look, looked like animals, <coughs> then there's a tremendous shame. The neshama, that's the neshama, the soul of an angel that is inhabiting the body of an animal, of a horse. Right? There's a tremendous shame. And the natural response of such, a, of such a soul is to hide the body. What happened? 
they, they hid themselves, right? They hid, they, they clothed themselves. And then it says that Hashem appeared in the garden and sewed them tunics of clothing. They made themselves, you remember what happened? They made themselves garments. There's nothing insignificant in the Torah. And every detail has to study. When it says that they made themselves garments of leaves, right? they sewed fig leaves, they took leaves and they made themselves garments. With a fig leaf you can only cover a small amount of the body, right? They covered the immediate nakedness of the body. But then Hashem came, and it says He made, he made for them kotnot or, right? Which means, kotonet in Hebrew is like a, a suit or a tunic of, of, of skin. Or, I in vibration Hebrew, right? What's going on? There are two, fu- stay with me carefully. There are two functions to clothing. I hope it's becoming a bit more clear. There are two functions to clothing. One is that it hides you and hides your nakedness. That it reveals who you are. Those two functions of clothing can be seen within clothes. The lower parts of the body, the, the primary function of clothes is to hide the nakedness. The higher parts of the body, the primary function is to real dig- reveal dignity. The lower part of the body, you're not covering to show dignity. You're covering to hide nakedness. The higher parts of the body, you are covering in order to project dignity. A hat, for example. A hat is a garment of pure dignity, pure honor. A hat is the no, no function. You, you don't wear a hat because you, you're naked without a hat. It, and it's significant, of course, that this generation has done away with the formality of hats. Because it's a generation that's descending lower and lower. That's also why this generation has done away with formal clothes. Now, this generation, you understand, as you should know, nowhere be more sensitive to this than in this country. Right? In, 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 I don't know, it depends on your age, but, but you don't have to be that old to know that not long ago, the, the, the dignified dress... Was, was an absolute measure of, <coughs> of the person, and it was an absolute... Th- there, were, th- there were many establishments that you couldn't enter unless you were suitably dressed. There, there mu- mu- any self-respecting restaurant right, would not admit a man unless he wore a jacket and tie. And if it was something more than a restaurant, something really important like the opera, you know, or the ballet, or something like that, you had to go in a whole outfit. You had to rent something that was, you know... Today... Today, if you go out, you'll see that people go to things like that in their pajamas. <laughs> and part of the dress, not that long ago, was definitely was a hat for men and women. Why? Because the highest part of the body, the head, the garment that is applied to the highest part of the body, is a garment of, of, of projecting dignity. It's not to hide nakedness. But the lower parts of the body, are, are you with me? So what happened was, when they sinned and their bodies began to project the animal, so they tried to cover the animal element. And Hashem came and taught them an incredible lesson. He came and taught them, your breakdown now must be your correction. Don't only cover the nakedness. Now you must use clothes to hide the animalistic nature of the body and project its dignity. You understand? And therefore He sewed them garments that were not just a hiding of nakedness, but dignified garments to project the honor. That's what it became. That's the pathway in the world, to use the place of breakdown for its own correction. That's a deep Just to hear it a bit more deeply, <coughs> you know, in, the, in, the, in our deeper tradition, it says that before they sinned, they wore garments of light. You know that? It says, they wore garments of light. <coughs> what does it mean to wear a garment of light? <coughs> it means that the garment reveals. That's what it means. It projects. It doesn't hide. What Adam looked like, <coughs> just to give a vague, whatever, you know, 
He looked the opposite that we, of what we look now. Today, a human being looks like an animal. Today, the body of a human being, if you look at a human today, you could easily make the mistake of thinking that a human is a species of biological creature. We look exactly the same, except for very, very faint clues. The Gemara says vertical posture and ziva ponim. There's a certain glow on the face. Certain glow on the face, especially if people are sensitized or worked on themselves, there's a certain glow on the face. That's called the ziva ponim, the glow of the face. But there's very little difference. That glow on the human face today is so faint that it's almost indiscernible. All you see is a body, the very faint glow. Adam looked exactly the opposite. When you looked at him, all you saw was light. An incandescent, <coughs> luminescent emanation of light. And if you looked very carefully, you could make out the faint wisp of a body. Right? It was exactly the opposite of the way we are now. He wore, his garment was light, or. And then it says, Hashem came and clothed in garments of or with an ayin. You know, in Hebrew, I think we've discussed this previously, without going into detail, when an aleph in Hebrew becomes an ayin, <coughs> an aleph in Hebrew becomes an ayin, it always represents a transition from the spiritual version of the thing into its fallen or earthy version. Are you familiar with that principle? Aleph in Hebrew, <coughs> aleph in Hebrew, the, the letter aleph, the first letter of the alphabet in Hebrew, always means spiritual elevation. Right? Aleph in Hebrew, you know, in, in English you can't do this, but in Hebrew, letters have meanings as well. Aleph means the letter aleph, but the word means something in Hebrew. Aleph in Hebrew means to teach. It means to elevate, to elevate, right? Aluf is the highest rank. Aleph is the highest number in the decimal system, right? Aleph, aluf, etc. Aleph all means to elevate. Incidentally, the English word elevate and elephant, right? They come from aleph and aluf and aleph. But you have to know how Hebrew is derived, English is derived from Hebrew, but that requires separate discussion. But the aleph is always the, the elevation, right? And of course, that's why the aleph is the highest letter. It has only a number of one, which is unity. The divine, the divine number, and the Aleph is not yet in the world fully. So the Aleph is always only just beginning its journey into the world. That's why it's silent. It's the only Hebrew letter that is silent. And Ayin is not silent. People who speak Hebrew correctly, the Ayin is a guttural, it's one of, one of the five guttural letters. An Ayin, right? You can hear it. So Aleph is a silent letter because it hasn't yet manifested with a sound in the world. And of course, as I pointed out before, that's why the Aleph is the two lights. Aleph is the Yud, which is the spiritual, the, the letter of spiritual source from the higher world, with a Yud in the lower world, right? Showing that the Aleph contains Kvodova Atzmo. The Aleph contains the essence of the thing and the way the thing reflects itself in the world. Joined by the Vav in Hebrew, which means the letter of connection. Vav in Hebrew, like we said before, connect. Vav means end. So the Aleph has two Yuds, mirror reflecting each other, with a Vav joining them. And of course, two Yuds and a Vav add up to 26, which is the divine name. It's all in the Aleph. That's what it is. So what happens is the Aleph is the letter of revelation. Ayin in Hebrew, Ayin always means that which is not revealed but is hidden. For example, the, an eye in Hebrew is an eye. What is the, what is the function of the eye? Is to reveal things, right? Is to see things that are previously hidden until you look at them. Ma'ayan in Hebrew. What's a ma'ayan? The word Ayin, Al-Ain Hamayim, means on the spring of water. <coughs> Ma'ayan in Hebrew, which is based on the word Ayin, means a spring. A spring is where the underground hidden water is now coming into revelation. Right? That's always what Ayin is. Aleph is always that which is visible. Ayin is always that which is not naturally visible, but an effort has to be made to, to bring it out. That's why people who learn, anybody with a Gemara background knows what we call Iyun. Iyun means, right? Iyun means the superficial, the Iyun means with your eye. 
Some people who don't understand, they think it means when you learn Be'iun, which means concentrating, you close your eyes. It doesn't mean that. Iun means, right, that you... It does mean you close your eyes. You have to think deeply. Iun means to think into the thing where the thing is not revealed. You have to bring it out. <coughs> so therefore, they wore garments of light, meaning or, Aleph, Vav, Resh, and Hashem clothed them in garments of skin, Ayin, Vav, Resh. Which means that the light with an Aleph transformed itself, or with an Aleph transformed itself into or with an Ayin. In Hebrew, or with an Aleph means light. Or with an Ayin means blind. Ayin Vav Resh in Hebrew means blind. Iver in Hebrew. Again, the word for skin. The word for skin in Hebrew is the same word as blind. Because it hides. Incidentally, the English word hide. Where do you think that comes from? Why do we talk about a thick hide? There's no accident. Because the, the skin is not just a surface covering. It hides the interior. That's what it is. It's a hide. It's called or. Or in Hebrew means hide. Iver means to hide, to be blind, not to be able to see. No ayin anymore. <laughs> so they were clothed originally in or with an aleph. And they were given then garments of or with an ayin. means that the light became now a, 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 an absence of light. Became now a blockage, a, a blindness. <clears throat> I mean, it's so, you know that in Hebrew, the alphabet is Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, the first four letters. If those letters in sequence are spelling Aleph, Beget, Beget is a garment, is clothing. Aleph, the spiritual letter, which is the core, this is the Neshama, and the next three letters are going externally, are Beget, the garment that surrounds the inner core. Right? That's exactly what it means. The, the, the alphabet begins by the spiritual world being formed, and immediately that's Atzmo, Hashem himself, no sound, spiritual, 26. And the next three letters are the garment that clothes it so it can be seen in the world. That's called Beged. So the alphabet goes Aleph, Beged. And of course the word Beged in Hebrew has two meanings, obviously. Beged in Hebrew means a garment, and it means treachery. What's the connection? Yeah? What's the connection between Begidah, Boged, treachery, a traitor in Hebrew? This is how I taught you at school in Israel? <laughs> because Beged is meaning treachery is, the problem is the garment. A traitor is someone who's one thing on the inside, but he wears the uniform, the garments of the opposite team, army, enemy, etc. on the outside. That's what Begidah is. <coughs> the other word for, for clothing in Hebrew is Levush. And the Medactikim say it spells Lobosh. Levush, which means a garment, spells not to be ashamed. Lobosh. It's hiding the shame. Those two functions are... Actually, the, the, an outer garment in Hebrew is called a me'il. A coat in Hebrew, a cloak. An outer garment is called a me'il. The word me'il in Hebrew is the root of me'ilah. <coughs> you know what me'ilah means? Mo'el in Hebrew, me'ilah means... Me'ilah means when you go to the inner sanctum of spirituality and you take it to the outer world of the profane. Stealing from the sanctified domain. We don't use the word stealing for that. If you go to the temple, for example, and take something out, the technical word is me'ilah. Me'ilah. See what's happening? An outer garment is again the, the function, clothing again, you see, being the function of the confusion of the sanctified inner dimension being revealed improperly on the outside. That is the... The world is now cast into a battle between inner essence that needs to be clothed appropriately on the outside in order for the inner essence to shine. We can no longer reveal the inner essence 
because then it appears as nakedness. After the world was crashed into its paradoxical balance or imbalance now, is the only way to reveal an internal beauty, the only way to reveal an internal beauty now, is not to, to, to show it naked. That's exactly the opposite. Today, that was originally the mode and it will be again. But the mode that has to be used in the world now is that that beauty has to be projected as a modesty. Right? That's called sneus. Sneut means that special woman's mitzvah. <coughs> Sneut means that there's a hiding of the nakedness in such a way that a spiritual projection is achieved. <coughs> Joseph. Right? What does he represent? Anyone who knows anything about any Kabbalistic ideas knows <coughs> that Joseph represents what's called Yesod. Yesod is always the point of connection of bond between man and woman. That's what Joseph represents. And that's why he's the one who perfects that area. <coughs> he's only 17 years old. Potiphar's wife is trying to entice him into this area and he's able to resist it. He teaches that for all time. The Gemara says because he resisted her as effectively as he did, the result was that when his brothers came down to Egypt and the Jewish people grew and formed as a nation, for 210 years they lived in Egyptian slavery and there was not one incident of immorality among the Jewish people. Gadur mi erva. They were circumscribed and fenced off from any immorality because of the work that Joseph put in. As a youngster of 17, he resisted with superhuman strength. The Gemara says that he dug his nails into the ground. He literally had to dig his nails. He did a tremendous ordeal. A lot of details discussed there. What happened? And he, in order to what she did and how she tried to seduce him, a lot of detail, because of the effort that he put in, he put enough energy into the, his descendants that for 210 years in Egypt, they were able to withstand it. Now, you have to know what that means. You're talking about a nation of millions of people living in Egypt, which was the center of depravity, as slaves, having not yet been given the Torah. You have to understand what this means. You're talking about a people of pure, raw morality. Again, a slave nation, right? Not yet gelled into being a nation by the Torah and its morality. Not yet. Only a natural sense of morality received from, right, from the forefathers specifically brought into focus by Joseph. Living in a land that, I can't say this in English, but that the, the Torah calls Ervat Haaretz. That's what it's called Egypt. In, in polite English, it means the nakedness of the world. That's what Egypt was called. Egypt was a completely depraved society. Completely immoral society. Which means that you can picture a Jewish woman who's living as a slave in torture in Egypt. What she could have gained by just a drop of even a suggestion of immorality in terms of some Egyptian. And the Gemara says there was not one incident in 210 years. And we know that because the only one there was has been publicized. There was a woman called Shlomi Spaz Dibri. Shlomit, but Debris, there was one Jewish woman who behaved improperly and it was almost imperceptible her behavior. The, the, impro the impropriety of her behavior was only, you know what but Debris means? To speak too much. Shlomit, but Debris. You know that word? You know those? It's a very telling name. In Hebrew, in Hebrew, Shlomit, but Debris means Shlomit, the daughter of... But those words are telling. Shlomit means to greet and Debris means to speak. She was a bit too forthcoming with her speech and connections, and because of that an Egyptian noticed her, and because of that he managed one night to impersonate her husband in the dark and she didn't know, and because of that, that incident occurred, she became pregnant, the child was born, became very problematic, but it was the only incident in 210 years of slavery of a Jewish woman committing any immorality with an Egyptian, and even that was virtually, an act, virtually, virtually entirely an accident, and that's the only incident. And to understand what the Jewish people were, 210 years. 
I ha- I, one, one is ashamed to say it, but today, do 210 seconds go by? <laughs> <laughs> Where there isn't, unfortunately, a selling of Jewish morality? But that's not the way it was. No? And, and Joseph, Yosef Atzadik, was the one who injected that energy to the Jewish people that lasted for centuries. Not only for the centuries of existence in Egypt, but the Jewish people maintained that thing until very recently. It's only very recently that, that the walls of Jewish sensitivity and modesty and morality have fallen. It's only in the whole post-enlightenment era that, that those that dignity and morality and modesty have, have collapsed. But that's what it was. And that's why our definition of beauty, right, the Greek definition of beauty is externality. Our definition of beauty is using an externality to project a beauty on the outside that hides a potent inner beauty on the inside. That's why whenever you find beauty mentioned in the Torah, yofi, right, yofi, which means beauty, <coughs> you find it's always associated with the concept of a modesty and a hiddenness and a morality. For example, Yosef in Hebrew, Joseph, was described as having that kind of beauty. The numerical equivalent of the name Yosef is the same as Zion. Zion, 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 which means the inner sanctum, <coughs> a specific point on the base of Mikdash, right in the inner sanctum. Zion and Yosef, it's that intimate inner zone of privacy and of meeting between us and Hashem, right, which is where the intimacy takes place, and it's that, it's that modesty and privacy, and therefore in Jewish terms. Why? You, have, you hear this. Why is Joseph the one who is described as such an, such an in, in incredibly potent beauty? Because he's the one who teaches how to use beauty for a holding back and a morality. Again, you have to understand, our concept of beauty, sensuous beauty, is, 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 is that it lives in the, correctly lives <coughs> in the zone of holding itself in and within itself so that it doesn't become an immodesty. That's our concept of beauty. There's many examples of this, I mean, in Tanakh, if you know, if you know Tanakh, you'll know in Chumash, Joseph is the man who's described as having a woman's beauty. In Nach, there's one other man who is described as incredibly beautiful, Absalom. Incredible, beautiful hair. He was a Nazir. A Nazir is a person who keeps him away from certain sensuous pleasures. He keeps himself in a certain type of asceticism. Again, it's the same, in the Talmud you have a woman called Imma Shalom. Ima Shalom was the wife of one of the Tanoim. She had unbelievably beautiful children. Exquisitely beautiful children. They asked her why she merited children of such inner and external beauty. She said because she kept herself extremely far from any faint hint of revelation or immodest exposure. In an extreme fashion, the Gemara describes how she conducted herself. <coughs> Our concept of beauty, the world's concept of beauty, is to use the sensuous and project that intermingled with the beauty. And our concept of beauty now in this state of the world is that the only way to do it is to, is to use a modest projection on the outside, which is, that's the correct application of an aesthetic sense, in order to hide a privacy which is, right, that is the genuine beauty. Where does the Gemara teach this? Maybe we'll finish, <coughs> finish with this. The classic teaching, the Gemara says that Rabbi Sherban Hananya was the great sage of his day. And he, one of the great sages, he was extremely ugly to the point of being 
uniquely ugly, even perhaps misshapen. He was, it was, he was, he was bodily, not particularly ugly. <laughs> the Gemara says that um, the praise that the Mishnah praises him, Ashrei Yolalatu, happy is the mother who bore him. And, and it says that when he was a tiny baby, she used to wheel his, uh, his baby carriage, she used to wheel it into the base medrash, so that his ears should be formed by the sound of Torah. Now that means even, even, his, even much too young to understand, Torah should become the, the, the energy of formation of this child. So, he was, so the Gemara says, it's a, many, many details about him. The Gemara says once, <coughs> he met the daughter of Caesar. <coughs> the Romans at that time, this is in the post-Greek era, the Romans occupied Israel at the time. He met the daughter of Caesar or the emperor, the Gemara says Caesar, perhaps it was the emperor of, of that uh, domain at the time. And she said to him, he was so ugly that it was really, it was not anything that, you know, there was not even, a, apparently not even any poli- politeness that needed to be maintained. So she said to him, how is it, how could there be such incredible wisdom in such an ugly vessel? She knew of his great wisdom, was this incredible wisdom, and, and when she met him, she said to him, how could there be such incredible wisdom in such an ugly vessel? That was her question. Now, before, now be, before we understand his answer, you have to understand the question. First of all, you notice this question being asked by a woman and by a Roman woman. And the meaning is that Rome's ideology built on Greece, again, is the world of aesthetics. So she couldn't understand how a beautiful interior could be held in an in a ugly exterior. And of course, that is a woman's... A woman's greatness is the aesthetic sense. The Gemara says beauty is in woman. Not beauty, the Gemara says, a woman represents beauty. And Zion, the Gemara says, took nine-tenths of the beauty in the world. Obviously, after what we've discussed, it should be obvious. It says, Asarak kabin shal yofi olam. Ten measures of beauty came down to the world. But Zion and Zion, Jerusalem took nine. Not Jerusalem took nine. Ten measures of beauty... Yofi, right, which means spiritual beauty. Jerusalem took nine of them. You know, whenever the Gemara says nine out of ten, it means the rest is only a charitable handout. That's what it means. Maisa, the tenth, the rest of the world only gets Maisa from Yerushalayim. Any other beauty in the world is only the, the left of a charity right, that Yerushalayim spills out. That's all. <coughs> so she said to him, how could there be such incredible death in such an ugly vessel? So he said to her, listen to this answer. He said to her, what does your father keep his wine in? So she said, like anybody, keeps them in clay amphora. You know, the, the, earthenware, the earthenware vessels, yeah. I don't know what i do with that. With that. <laughs> 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 and yeah, I get that. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> 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 it's been a long day. <laughs> so, the, um, <laughs> she said, he keeps his wine in the earthenware vessels. So she, he said to her, but surely that's not fitting for a king. Surely he should have his wine in gold and silver vessels. So she thought it was a good idea. She went back to the palace and she ordered them to put her father's wine in the cellar into gold and silver vessels. Now, when you put alcohol into a metal vessel, it leaches out the metal and it goes off, right? It becomes vinegar, it goes sour, it spoils the wine. When they served the wine at the table, the wine was off. So he said, what happened? So she said, the Jew told me to do this. So he had a Rishur and Khanina brought in. 
And he said to him, what's going on? So he said, your daughter asked me a question, and I simply answered her according to what she asked. She asked me how such great content could be held in such an ugly vessel. I tried to show her that when the vessel achieves an importance, it spoils what's inside. I tried to show her that when the garment, when the clothing tries to be its own, tries to do something more than simply contain, then it spoils what's inside. The function of a container must be just to be empty. The the function of a container is only emptiness. As soon as it tries to contribute, it spoils what's inside. Right? You have a broken body, you have a broken body that isn't trying to fight, when the body's trying to make its own statement, then it's depressing the wisdom inside. The woman says she was not satisfied with her answer, because she posed the next question. Talking, we're not talking about fools. She said to him, what about your friends who are exceedingly beautiful and wise? <coughs> because they were tanoim of exquisite beauty. Exquisite beauty. The one example, Rabbi Yechanan the Gemara says, was extremely beautiful generations later, much lesser generation, that he once visited one of his friends and Amari was ill and poverty stricken in a dark house. Moses Rabbi Yechanan rolled his sleeve up and lit the house. His, his beauty was so literally incandescent that he lit a house by rolling up his sleeve. I'm talking about incredible beauty. So she said, she said, how come your friends are beautiful and wise? So he said, have a sunny, have a gemirit fei. Had they been ugly, they would have been wiser. (laughs) 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 Meaning that they managed to achieve their wisdom despite the disadvantage of good looks. That's, That's what he said. But you have to understand. In other words, Let's try and summarize. The, the original status of the world is or was a world in which the Oregon was shone. When that light shines, then there's no distinction in inside and outside. In fact, the inside is visible. That's the original light of Torah. There is no inside-outside distinction. Clothes are not relevant. You can't wear clothes and you cannot have shame. It's not relevant in the world. There is no such thing. After the human enters a state in which the neshama, the inner being, is in conflict with the outer being, then the outer being is depriving the inner being of its... And that is therefore entering that schism between the two. And the solution is that the body needs to be disciplined. It needs to be, it needs to be covered, so it does not present its animalistic face. And yet it needs to be covered, but with a dignity. So that it, in fact, does not just get put away, but it projects itself, yet projects itself with a dignity. That's the delicate balance, not of the area of modesty, which is the correct projection of an inner beauty on the outside. Aesthetics now need to serve the spiritual purpose. That's why Greece can be brought into Torah. <clears throat> That's why the world of Torah can utilize the world of, aesthet- of aesthetics and beauty. As long as the world of aesthetics externally is nothing other than a vehicle for the spiritual content, as long as the Greek language is being used to write a safer Torah, so then all the external beauty, when it's a loyal vehicle and not trying to make its own statement, that can be used as a Hanukkah is the time that teaches us. We always read Yosef on Hanukkah. What's the hint? What's the clue? Because Joseph is the one who teaches this thing. The menorah is a symbol. Right? What The light that was being lit there of the menorah, the question is not why do you need light? We have always light. The question is why do you need to light a light of the menorah now when for 40 years we've been using the original light anyway? This is only another version of the same light. Correct? That's what it is. Joseph gives an answer. Not going to now going to the answer. The point is that the light of the menorah is the light of the hidden beauty. It is the light that shines. It's a small reflection. Right? 
A little boy said to me, little boy, six years old, came home from Chayda the other day. He said to me with wide eyes, he says, my Rebbe told me that if you look at things in the street that are not good for you to see, and then you come home and you look very carefully at the Hanukkah lights, then it purifies and cleanses what you saw in the street. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Exactly correct. Exactly, that's, that's what it is. Lighting the Hanukkah menorah, <coughs> what you're doing is you're revealing a small light in the world that is the light of the original light, which is the hidden light, and you're able to bring it into Gilu, into Revelation, if it's done correctly. And that's why we shine it out. We put it in the window. We, we project that out into the world, right? We project it inwards to ourselves. The people in the house have to be there to see it. And it shines out into the people passing by in the street. Right? That is our version of what this light is. It's the light of the menorah that takes us back to the light of the menorah that was in the Mishkan, which is a light that wasn't necessary in terms of... Yeah, it was a light... A rekindling of the light of the, of the Oragonus, which was the original filling of the world with a light that made no distinction between an inside and an outside. It was the light that illuminated the internality of things and not the externality. Today, we do it in mitzvahs with Hanukkah, whenever it's the one time that we do that, we do it in the very depth of winter, when the nights are darkest and longest. That's when we shine this small, right, in that almost hopeless depth of winter, is we're shining out those, those lights. We rekindle, with those lights, we are rekindling the 36 units, if you like, of the original Oragonos, it's a, that's why the Rambam says it's a mitzvah chaviva ad ma'ed. It's a very precious mitzvah. Imagine, imagine the Rambam saying that. He's commenting on mitzvahs. It's a very precious mitzvah. The only time he says that. And he applies that comment of a very beautiful, very precious mitzvah to that mitzvah, which is a rabbinic mitzvah. At the end of the day, Hanukkah is a rabbinic ordinance. It's not a Torah law. It's a rabbinic law. It's a very precious mitzvah. It's our being able to kindle, of our own as it were, the light that it is. Through the rest of the year, what do we do? We learn Torah. The rest of the year, Torah is that light that shines up permanently into the world. Torah is the riser, the light of the original, original light. Today, if you want to illuminate the internality of a thing, not just its external superficiality, to illuminate the external superficial, you study Greek wisdom, philosophy, science, empirical wisdom. You study that, nothing wrong with that. It needs to be brought into the tense of Torah so that the manifestations of things are clear. Nothing wrong with it. It needs to be done. See, see its beauty. But it has to be done projecting and connecting with and being nothing other than a vehicle for the light of the dice that shines inward. That's why the Gemara says that when the child is unborn and he's taught the whole Torah in the womb and he's shown all of the light of the what's called the Oragonus. So the Gemara says, and there's a light lit above his head. Who bought with that light he sees from one end of the world to the other. A light kindled above his head. And with that light, it's incidentally the reason when someone dies, we lay them on the floor and we light a candle at their head. But uh, the child is in the womb. He's, he's, he's uh, learning Torah. And a light lit above his head. By that light he sees from one end of the world to the other. It's a beautiful clue. If you wish to see things, you don't put a light on your head. Yeah, holding a candle on top of your head. <coughs> that's not the way to do it. If you want to see an object, you put the candle next to the thing. That's the clue. Are you with me? No? If the child is being born at that moment, Hashem wants to show him the whole world. It should be that a light is shone on the world. It doesn't say that. And there, the light shines on his head and he sees the whole world. What it means is the inner light is kindled. And by that he sees everything from within himself. That's what it means. And therefore, of course, Hanukkah is the time of lighting the lights inside the house, shining outward 
only a symbol for igniting the light of the Jewish Neshama, which is Torah, which should burn from the winter and throughout the year.